Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Dr. Terrence L. Green, and I am your host back in the building for another episode. Now, for today, we're going to do something special. We're going to do something that I call Office Hours with Professor Green. And this is when I respond to a question that I received via email from one of our podcast listeners. I asked their permission if I can respond to their question via a podcast because I think it could help, you know, more people than the person who sent it. And so I'll read their email and then I'll react to it. And I'll share my thoughts. If you're ready, let's go. You're listening to the Racially Just Schools podcast, the show that provides resources to help you and your team build racially just schools. Now, here's your host, Dr. Terrence L. Green. Okay, now the core of the question uh, that was sent in is around like, how do you make your professional learning communities more racially just or to make them racially just? And I received this email from someone that I'll call Morgan for the sake of this podcast. And the email reads as follows. Dear Dr. Green, I first want to say that I really have enjoyed listening to your podcast. I've shared it with my principal and assistant principal and several of the teachers on our fourth grade team listen to it during our evening walks. It is refreshing to hear from you and your amazing guests, and the podcast has helped me think about my own practice in some new ways. I, however, have a question for you. Since several of the teachers on our fourth grade team listen to your podcast, and given that we are all part of the same professional learning community, I'm wondering, do you have some advice for how we can make our PLC, or professional learning community, more racially just? We are all in different places in our racial justice work, but there is enough of us who realize that we are obligated to the work of making our school more racially just. I would love if you have any advice that you could share on how we might think about starting to do this work. I bet you get a lot of emails. So if you don't have time to respond, I do understand. Wishing you all the best. Thanks again for the podcast. Sincerely, Morgan. And Morgan, thank you for sending in this question. This is an important question. It's so important that I wrote a blog post on it, and I'm also going to devote this podcast to responding to 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 that question. I also want to remind people um, that if you have a question that you're grappling with and you think it may be beneficial for other folks may be experiencing, they may not be experiencing it. Um, feel free to email me at Terrence at racially just schools.com. That's T E R R A N C E at racially just schools.com. Now I can't guarantee that I'll get to every, um, email and we'll, we'll, we'll respond to it or we'll make a podcast of it because to be honest, email is one of my Achilles heels. <laughs> um, but if I can help, I'll do my best to. Okay. So feel free to email. And you never know, your question may be the one we'll be discussing next time on Office Hours with Professor Green. Before I react and share some thoughts and ideas around this question, I just first want to make sure everybody's coming in here with a shared and common understanding um, around what a professional learning community is or what we often call a PLC in a K-12 setting. So a professional learning community is essentially when a group of uh, educators, they meet regularly and during those meetings, you know, folks share their 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 experiences, their practice, their expertise, um, all sort of geared towards using that learning to improve their work. Um, that's essentially what it is. 
And but the reality is, given like the day to day pressures, the demands that are placed on our time, particularly of educators and leadership teams, it becomes very easy for professional learning communities just to become just like another meeting. Right. And I remember, you know, this happened to me when I was a, a, a teacher, a high school science teacher. You know, despite my very best intentions and our team's very best intentions, there were times when, you know, PLC just was filled with time. We're just doing last minute lesson planning. You know, um, we're, we're grading papers. Uh, we're trying to eat lunch and any other urgent task that's like demanding for our attention that filled up the time of our professional learning community. And it can just feel like super overwhelming. But, you know, despite all of the urgent tasks and the many things that need to be be done, I think professional learning communities, they are a mechanism, they are a resource that schools and districts have that if leveraged properly can really start to advance racial justice work. All right. And so I got a number of things to to share on this. And so I'll share a couple of ways that I think that you can make your professional learning community more racially just or racially just. Okay, I'm super excited because in this episode, I'm going to share with you three specific steps, three things that you literally can do today, tomorrow, to start working towards making your professional learning community more racially just. Now, I will say this up front that, you know, towards the end, as I'm explaining some of these, I'm going to narrate something that I would typically, um, you would typically experience, like if we were doing a professional learning community, we were working together in person or or online now in the Zoom world. But before I do that, I want to share with you six questions to kind of take an inventory to get a sense of where you and your team are right now with your professional learning community. And I would you know, encourage you to do an inventory of these questions on your own, the folks on your team to do an inventory, and then you all come back and have collective conversation about, you know, where you are and kind of calibrate that work. Um, now, I will put a link in the show notes to these questions. I'll put a link to the blog post that actually has these questions in them. So you can refer to them, you know, cut them out, paste them, things of that nature. And I will say this finally about these questions. These questions are in in many ways intended to be like foundational, right? Uh, I always think about this work being an edifice and you go about building on this edifice what is specific and responsive to your particular context. And so in this in this episode, I won't be talking specifically about, you know, in your professional learning community. This is how you look at common assessments and this is how you do an analysis of student work. I think that is super powerful and super important to do once you have established this foundation. Right. So once you have the foundation around building and cultivating a racially just professional learning community, then what you actually do on that foundation as you're building and working towards um, having a, a more racially just uh, PLC uh, uh, that is amazing and that is wonderful and that is powerful. Okay. So let's jump into these six questions first, just to get a sense of kind of like where you are. And then I'll share with you three practical strategies of things you can do today, tomorrow to start to make your professional learning community more racially just. And so I want to give you just six questions that you can ask just tomorrow, right now to start to assess, to start to inventory where your professional learning community is around racial justice, particularly around creating this constant environment for racial justice to guide your professional learning community. And those six questions are as follows. 
The first one is how and in what ways have we intentionally created an environment in our PLC where transformative racial justice can happen, right? So how have we intentionally created the conditions, the environment for transformative racial justice to happen in our PLC? The second question is this, have we set collective agreements for how we want our PLC to feel, to look, to sound, and to be when racial justice is at the core? Have we set collective agreements for how we want our PLC to feel, to look, to sound, to be when we have racial justice as the core? Number three is, have we discussed racial justice expectations for our PLC, right? Do we have like racial justice aims and pursuits and expectations? The fourth question is, how and in what ways do we distribute responsibilities for our PLC equitably, right? So this question is around the equitable distribution of, of, of PLC and how people show up. Number five is, have we constantly made learning participatory in our PLC? And number six is, how might we make learning in our professional learning community expansive enough to tap into people's racial, cultural, and experiential knowledge? How might we make learning in our PLC expansive enough to tap into people's racial, cultural, and experiential Experiential knowledge. Now, as you go through these questions and you talk about them, it may be like we haven't done it. So this is like how and in what ways we have in no ways. Right. And so if you are answering these questions and that's what folks are are sharing out, then it is what it is, is where you are. You know, is, is the great Rich Milner book title. Start where you are, but don't stay there. Right. But these are some questions you can ask tomorrow to start to gauge. very practical. Here are some things you can do like tomorrow, right? When you start thinking about your professional learning community and making it more racially just, then here's the first thing I want to share with you is to constantly create the environment for racial justice is to constantly create the environment for racial justice. Environments are important for the type of work that we want to happen to take place. It's just like you can't grow apples in a desert. Why? Because that environment is not conducive for growing apples. The same thing is true that you can't cultivate deep transformative racial justice work if the people in your school or district don't have a sense of radical trust with one another and radical collaboration to move beyond these unequal dynamics of power, but it's so important to create the environment. And real quickly, I want to tell you a story about the importance of environment. I remember when um, our oldest daughter was about two or three. And one of the things that uh, my dad used to do with myself and my brothers is take us to fly kites. And so I remember, you know, I want to take uh, our oldest daughter to go fly kites. And so this one day, you know, I bought the kite. We go out to this big field and I'm super excited to fly the kite. So I get the kite and, um, you know, I set it all up and then I start, you know, running with the kite because so it can catch the wind and the kite won't fly. And so I'm like, oh, what's going on here? And it's been a while since I've flown a kite. So I try to do it again. I pick the kite up again, try to run with it to get the kite to fly. It falls on the ground again. So at this point, I'm now going over to the kite like, all right, it's something wrong with the kite because I know I know how to fly a kite. I've been flying a kite since I was, you know, a little shorty. And so um, I go back and I do some maneuvering on the kite and think I've gotten it fixed. I take off with the kite to fly again and the kite falls to the ground again. And so at this point, my daughter's like, hey, I thought we was going to fly a kite. I thought this was all going to be so fun. And then it just dawned on me. You can't fly a kite 
in 90 degree weather, if there is no wind, you have to have the wind for a kite to fly. So I realized that the issue wasn't with me and my ability to fly a kite. The issue wasn't with the kite itself. The kite wasn't, you know, uh, having defects or anything wrong with it. The issue was around the conditions, the environment under which I was trying to do it. It wasn't conducive for it. Right. And so the same thing is true for our racial justice work. We have to constantly create the environments for this work to take root and for us to do it. And I want to be super practical on some ways you can do that. One is to establish some collective agreements or commitments that you will practice to guide your collective work. So this is important because setting collective agreements early on is imperative because it will allow everyone to contribute to the space and allow everyone to have input around how the space should feel, how it should look, how it should sound, how it should be. However, when you when you're creating like these collective or group agreements is important to understand how people's various identities you need to name how that can show up and it can inform the space. So in other words, you need to pay attention to the ways that historical and the contemporary ways in which people from marginalized communities um, can be uh, not central to what is happening because of their race and so on and so forth and all the intersections that intersect with race. So for an example, we know historically in group settings that men um, often speak over women, particularly white men, right? And is, is you, you got to be aware of that, right? And so you've got to name that and put that down when you're talking about group agreements to say we know historically and even in this context, uh, white men might talk over everybody. So we got to make sure that we name and we create a space where that is not the case. Um, you know how people can be, um, uh, you know, marginalized in spaces around their, their race, their, their ethnic um, identity, their gender, their gender identity, their, their sexual orientation, their religion and any other socially constructed marker of difference. Um, therefore, it helps to have group agreements that name these. And also disrupt them, right? And so another point as you're making these collective agreements and these group agreements um, is you should have conversations on how to have a radically brave space. And again, not necessarily a safe space because safe spaces have been based on creating comfort for white people, right? And so the question becomes safe for whom, right? And like, that's a whole nother thing. I got a whole nother podcast on safety, but you got to make sure that the spaces, the group agreements are not set up to continue to make white people feel comfortable and to make them have a sense of delicacy. No, we have to be radically brave um, and we want people to be able to show up and we want to center the voices, the perspectives, the lived experiences of black and other non-black racially minoritized um, you know, folks of color. Um, and so the last point here is that one of the things that's helped me in, in, in my practice in thinking about group agreements and collective agreements is not only just having these group agreements that you have and that you come back to, you know, during every meeting, but it's also taking a step further to think about this question. How will we restoratively address situations when, not if, <laughs> someone transgresses one of the agreements, right? So you got to be thinking about like, 
we've said this is what we want to guide our work. What happens when what we said we want to guide our work doesn't guide our work? The next question becomes like, how do we restoratively respond? How do we respond in a way that works to make people whole again, to repair them from any harm that may have been caused? even despite us having group agreements. But the first thing that I see is like a lot of people, they like, we go engage in this work, but they haven't even set up the conditions and not only set up the conditions, constantly come back to those conditions, but then also be thinking about once these conditions are interrupted, how do we restore the people in this collective, but also how do we restore the space so we can continue to do this work? Another thing with these collective agreements is to clearly communicate the expectations for the group, right? So what is the expectation of this PLC? Like, what are people supposed to be learning? A professional learning community. Like, what are we learning? Um, regardless of what that is, I encourage you to make sure that it is aligned with working towards racial justice. So it's not just like just getting better at the way we do common assessments. We're trying to get better at the way we do common assessments that work towards the pursuit of racial justice, right? We're not just trying to get better at the way that we teach our lessons or we do some, or we, we do our planning or the way we with like we're planning with racial justice in mind. We're doing instruction with racial justice in mind. We're thinking about the culture of our classrooms with racial justice in mind. And so you need to be explicit and clear about what it is um, that you're learning and make sure that it's working towards these broader aims of, of racial um, justice. Along with that, it's important to make sure that you distribute responsibilities in this professional learning community equitably. This means that we should be like clearly discussing what are the responsibilities that we need and the way that we all need to show up so that the professional learning community is participatory and not just, um, I was going to say, observationatory. So it's not something that you observe, but it's something that you actually participate in. But that has to be clearly demarcated by what are the responsibilities and the ways that people have to show up to this professional learning The second thing I want to share with you is this. This is the broad, big idea. is to anticipate, to name, and to confront racism. It's to anticipate, to name, and to confront racism. And I have a few questions to guide your your practice around this that you can ask tomorrow before I unpack this one. The first question is, does our PLC privilege white ways of knowing and being to mean intelligence? In other words, does your team aim to remediate students if they don't demonstrate the, the traditional markers of intelligence, such as speed of learning, memorization, and doing well on traditional tests as the only standard for intellectual capacity? Okay. You might have to rewind that one to get that question again. <laughs> the second question is, does our PLC hold different assumptions and subjective grading standards? So, look, I would love to live in a world, you know, where racism didn't exist. But the reality is we don't live in that world. OK, <laughs> even though we're working to create radically different realities and new worlds, we must grapple with the reality in which we find ourselves, which is that racism is part and parcel of every single school and every single district. This means that racism um, and even as we think about specifically anti-black racism, but also white supremacy culture. Um, it has and it continues to show up in professional learning communities. And so I think if people will just 
just settle with that reality. Um, I, there's a good blog post I wrote on three ways that um, racism shows up in anti-racism work, right? And so, like, th- we have to grapple with this. We have to name, anticipate it, name it, and confront it. So, as a result, if you if you want to make your professional learning community, you know, racially just, you have to anticipate. You have to name racism when it shows up. And when I'm talking about racism, I want you to specifically focus on the ISM, the ism part of it. And I'm lifting up particularly the systems, the the culture, the the ideas, the of course, the overt and covert ways that individual actions take place in our POC. And so here's a place to start. Right. And thinking about unpacking this larger one of anticipating naming and confronting racism is like, does your professional learning community have a shared understanding of what racism is? Number one, but number two, the ways in which it shows up in your school and more specifically in your professional learning community. Right. Do do you have an understanding of of that? And some I can I can hear people saying now, like, well, our professional learning community is is all white teachers. And this is an important point that I really want to underscore is that you don't have to have the presence of, you know, of black bodies and black people um, physically in a place for racism to be operating and functioning. <laughs> this is it's so important. Like you don't have to have like a non-black person of color in your presence for racism to function because it is a system of operation. It can function in the ways that you know, the ways that you be, the ways that you are culturally um, making sense of the world, right? That is a system that will advantage whiteness, white people, white knowledge, right? And so I want to just be clear on that because I can, I, I, I can under- anticipate people saying, well, we're all white people in our professional learning community, so there is no way we can be racist. And I'm saying there are many ways in which it can show up. And the first way is denying this first question is like, does your POC have a shared understanding of racism and how it shows up in your school and more specifically in your POC? Now, this is is vitally important um, for you to to grapple with this. And this shouldn't take six months. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it doesn't take six months to come up with some understanding of like um, what racism is and like how are some of the ways it shows up. And I'm going to give you some I'm going to share some some things you can do tactically and practically um, to start to work through this. OK, I think this can be done in like th- at least start it in like three meetings. Um, or so, because the goal is to come up with some common understandings of what racism is, but not opinions, but understandings, particularly based on the experiences of, you know, folks who have been racially minoritized, black, Latinx, uh, Asian, Pacific Islander, indigenous folks, and really drawn on the work of of black and other non-black scholars of color. Um, so, so here's how you can typically do this. So the first thing is, I'm going to give you a couple of steps here. I'll, I'll number them off in steps. Number one, um, you need to decide on a working definition of racism. And I have a whole like uh, set of ideas and tools and like agendas for like how you can do that. Like it's it, I, but you need to do that. And I might do a podcast on just like, how do you start to develop that? Um, so, I call these working definitions because as we work and as we learn and as we experience and as we live and as we grow, our thinking should expand. Things should become more nuanced. They should become more complex. And um, these are shifting ideas around how we come to understand like what racism is and how it shows up because race is so dynamic and it shifts and, and changes. 
And so, so that's the first step. Step two is to get a big sheet of sticky paper. Um, step three is to put two to three definitions of racism on the top. And again, this, this, this is like presupposing that you already have these shared and common understandings around what racism is. Step four is to draw four concentric circles. Okay. I want you to start from the center and draw out and label them as such systems, culture, interpersonal, and individual. And that individual is both covert and is also overt. Okay. Step five, then give each person as many sticky notes as possible. Step six is to allow, allow seven minutes for people to write down as many ways that they can think of that racism shows up in your professional learning community across these domains. Given where the group is, sometimes um, I'll start doing this activity uh, first with the district or the school, right? Or it, it depends on where people are in society. Um, because f- for s- some reason, it's, it's, it's easier for people to identify where racism is happening external to them and outside of their practices um, unless in their collective practice. And so a place to start if you need to is to think about society, how it shows up. And then after that, you can come into um, maybe your local community. And then after that, you can come into your district. Then you can come into the school and then you can come in to your professional learning community. And what the good thing about doing it this way or a benefit is that you can start to see patterns and trends. But depending on where you are as a professional learning community, you may just start with, you know, how is this showing up in our professional learning community in terms of the systems that we employ, the culture um, that we enact, the way we engage interpersonally and the way we show up individually. Right. And then number seven, step seven is to put the sticky notes on a large sheet of paper in the appropriate circle. So, right. You write down, for an example, um, one of the ways that racism shows up uh, in our systems is that we uh, we we privilege what I said earlier traditional ways of knowing particularly when it's attached to kids who are black and brown right so that's a way that it shows up in maybe a system or a routine that we have or it may show up in like culturally um and how we ex- the expectations that we have for certain groups of students based on race right um and so you want to put you want to make sure that people are writing things down and they're putting them up and then you want to have a conversation around discussing them, right? So after that's step eight, after we've started to have some conversation to discuss, and this may take multiple meetings um, that you have to recursively return to this. The next thing I want you to do, step nine, is I want you to create, uh, get a big sticky sheet again and create three columns, okay? The, the first column is going to be um, to anticipate, right? So then you put all those sticky notes that you have on that first sheet and you put them in the anticipate, like we have to anticipate that these are the ways that they show up. Right. And then what you need to do in the second column is call that name and then put us in, in name. You need to name, you know, how will we put this on the table, put it on the carpet that this has showed up. And then the third column is called confronting. How will we confront it when it shows up? Okay. So for an example, Let's keep this example that we have been using. Say, for an example, um, we know we have different expectations for students based off of the, their their racial identities. And again, people, they'll often say like, well, I don't have it based off of their, their racial identity. So you have to do some digging there. You may think about who deserves to be in what particular classes, who deserves to have what resources, things of that nature. Um, 
So say that is something that's continuing to show up. Your group needs to collectively come up with the specific ways on which how you're going to confront this, right? So when we have lower expectations based off of the previous grades that people have been in, which is attached, can be attached to race or the the labels that they have, which can be attached to race. When we see this showing up, we have to name it. And then how will we confront it? We will confront it by putting the mirror back on our practices to figure out how do we make our practices universally accessible, but specific enough to respond to the racial, cultural ways in which we have set up the system and the expectation that we have. Right. And so that's that's what you end with. You end with you end with ultimately having these three columns of anticipating because you know how they show up. The second column is you now know how you're going to name it and call it out. And then the third one is the confronting. How are we going to uh, reverse course to change what? Finally, the third way, um, and I know this has been a lot and is much more easy for me to demonstrate it than to, to say it here, but it's much more easy for me to probably talk it out than to write it, uh, write it out in a long, long email. The third way is to invert power, okay? It's to invert power or it's to, sw- it's, it's to turn power on his head, right? We always talk about often like power with versus power over. Well, power with, for that to really be a reality, you have to invert the dynamics of power. So in other words, what does this look like? How do we now um, invert the dynamics of power to where students are really shaping what happens in our practice and in our schools. So for an example, three ways you can think about doing this in your PLC, have conversations about what this will actually look like in practice. Number one, think about the ways that students can observe your teaching and offer feedback on it, right? (laughs) We often give feedback to students on, on their work and we often get feedback from colleagues on how we're teaching. But what if instead of the other people on your PLC coming to observe your class, what if students actually observed your class and gave you feedback on the way you engage students, gave you feedback on the way you plan or the lack thereof, gave you feedback on the way that um, you talk, the language that you use, the discourse that you have, gave you feedback on the way you engage in instruction and in how it may be just um, one particular method that you employ. Like, how powerful would that be? So that's one way. The second way is to think about um, how students can help co-construct lesson plans, right? So it may not be entire unit or it could be a unit plan or a lesson plan. Like how might students help to co-construct the lesson plans? I know you've got um, standards that you have to meet and things of that nature, but I think there's a way that you can backtrack to have a conversation with students around how they can co-construct what you need to learn. Um, to aim at the the standards that you have to meet in your job. And then the third thing is to think about what if students gave you a report card or a grade? <laughs> like, right, what if students um, collectively gave you a report card once a quarter, um, every eight weeks, um, once a month, at the end of the week, at the end of the day, 
on how you're doing around a number of metrics, right? How you're doing around the culture and the environment that you set up um, for students, particularly the racial culture, how you're doing with your instruction, you know, and your teaching, you know, how you're doing what you're engaging in, you know, how are you, you know, like, like what if there were report cards or a way for students to give you feedback um, on your work. And again, like all this feedback that students are given and youth are given that's co-constructed is stuff that you're actually using because it is a gift to continue to make your work in your professional life. Hey, I hope you all got some out of this. I know there's a lot in here to unpack. Um, you know, rewind, listen to it again. If you got other questions, let me know. But I hope this helps your practice in the work that you're doing. And see you when I see you. Peace. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining the Just Schools podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, and please leave a review. Love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace.